you were like me, and obviously none of you are, but um, one example of trying to fit in and be in the right group would have been attending the high school football games uh, when I was in high school. And and when I would do that, uh, I would usually make sure that I had a few friends with me I drove and had a car, and so it was very easy, and so we'd go in together. Now, you have to understand, our high school football games were played at the Rose Bowl. We'd have 3,000 show up, and that held, you know, 110,000. So there's plenty of room. But um, when we'd go in, we'd always look for who were the people waving at us. And hopefully we would say, oh, there's so-and-so, and that person's waving at us, and that's great, but we're not being with you. And then we'd go on to the next one until we found the ones that we really wanted to sit with. Well, that's because there were certain people that were important to us. This happened in terms of maybe the lunch group that you sat with in school. Um, uh, maybe it was a certain team that you wanted to make, or maybe it was certain parties you wanted to make sure that you were on that list. You see, like it or lump it, we all have uh, certain groups that we feel most comfortable with or we aspire to be in. Now, several months ago, Andy, who just gave announcements, um, was speaking to us as, as elders, or he wrote an email to us, and he said, you know, at, at our leadership meeting, we asked this question. We, the question was, what is your greatest fear right now? And uh, I read that and I went, oh my gosh, uh, what is my greatest fear? Where do I start? You know, how do I, how do I list them? Um, but th- now I have to be thinking of what is the greatest fear? Well, that's a gutsy question. And when you ask it, you have to make sure it involves both transparency on one end and confidentiality on the other, meaning it shouldn't be taken out of that room when somebody shares it. But over the years, I've heard many people share their greatest fears, and often it's in stuff. I'm afraid of spiders. I'm afraid of snakes. My wife hates mice. She can take any snake by the neck and, and ring it, but she sees a mouse, and man, she's out of there. She's also traveling today, so I don't have to have permission for that one. Um, but then, um, you know, and, and the funniest one I ever heard was uh, this mature, smart guy said his greatest fear was raw chicken. Oh, my gosh. And I thought, just looking at raw chicken causes him to shrivel up and be in fear. You see, sometimes we're talking about things. But when we're talking about our deepest fears, the chances are it's not about things, but it's about a state of being that we may be in. It's long-lasting. It continues. It doesn't stop after just, you know, we get rid of that thing. And, and so in the, in, in the last two weeks, uh, we have talked about the fear of financial collapse. The fact that we would not be able to support our families or, or support and you know, have support enough money to live. The next one uh, was dealing with just failure in life. We hate to fail, and we hate others to know that we have failed. Today, we're going to be looking at one of those that I call a deflating uh, exercise that occurs in us when we feel rejection. By deflating, it means it's like all the air is taken out of us. We all love approval, and we all experience, unfortunately, disapproval from others. 
Now, one telling event I remember is that when I moved from elementary school, where girls used to chase me, and they did, then I went to middle school and the girls stopped chasing me. And I was told, Jim, you have to invite them. What's that like? No, you have to go and you have to talk to them. And so, uh, just not just because I'm shy or other things. I just found talking to girls and inviting them to certain places, dances or parties, was very difficult for me. Now, there were two reasons. First of all, I'm not a great talker. I don't know how to really engage people that well. I don't know how to chit-chat or things like that. The second thing was, what happens if she says... That was men who answered that, okay? (laughs) What happens if she says no? And that fear controlled me. So much so that I would say, uh, I'll just meet you there. Or, you know, I, I look forward to being there. Or, you know, maybe we can, we didn't use the word hook up. Maybe we can have a dance together. What if she says no? A second time that I remember it was facing my father because he had said, Jim, when you finish your business degree, I want you to come back to California and get an MBA, a Master's of Business Administration. But I was talking about a Master's of Divinity. That was a hard conversation for me to initiate. Very difficult because he had expected me to take over the family business that had fed the family for for several decades. And it would have been quite a challenge, but I just didn't sense God was leading me that way. And my dad would say, what's God got to do with this? So I was seeking his approval and realizing I might be losing it. Whose approval do you seek? Whose approval have you not found? What effect occurs to you when you find that either you've gained it or you don't gain it? We're talking about facing fears, and now today is about rejection. Our loving God not only knows this fear, but he knows it so well that he describes it in Scripture often. So we see it in some of our greatest heroes and in some of the greatest villains, that occasionally they are so afraid of rejection that they make the wrong decisions. Can I start at the beginning? Adam, why was he hiding from God? Well, you might say he knew he was guilty. But more than that, it also says that he's ashamed of his nakedness and he did not want to be seen before God. And God's answer is, who told you you were naked? Well, it was that apple, you know. Uh, Something happened after he gained knowledge. But before that, he had the full approval of God and never hid from him. It says God would come down and walk in the cool of the day and, and there would be Adam and Eve with him. What a marvelous moment because they walked in full approval of one another. There was no rejection. And we understand that we are wired for approval. The question is, where are we looking for it? Where do we get it? And our spirits deflate when we experience rejection. This is described in Scripture as two of the greatest fears that you'll ever read about. The first is, understand we should have a healthy fear of God. Not a terror of something that scares us, but a sense of honor, a sense of of awe that God rightly deserves. That is called the fear of God. 
And we also understand that his absolute holiness should make us be aware that he's like a burning fire. And we are not. But when you look at that that awe that he deserves, it's a reasonable response for us to understand this great, almighty, and all-powerful, and, and holy God loves us. We're, we have his approval. He created us with his approval. And more than that, he continues to shower his love on us so that we would know and experience the approval that he offers. So that's the first great fear. But because we find ourselves drifting from God, we understand that we look for that approval in other places because we're wired for it. And the second one is because of our fallen nature, we will begin to seek approval more from other people instead of God. King Solomon describes it well. He says this in Proverbs 29:25, "The fear of man, you read that, the fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. The fear of man is a snare. In other words, it traps us, it enslaves us, it influences us to make bad decisions in our lives. Out of our desire to be accepted by certain people, we will make terrible choices. Because we realize if we don't decide their way, they will reject us. This fear started with me as a boy at my home. And it continues to show itself as a man in my senior years. The fear of man is what lures us into the relationships that can be a bad influence. And the behavior uh, lures us into the behavior that we would hide from others. When we grow older, we might begin to express that fear more as being people pleasers. And we, we say, well, we want to please people and we just design our whole lives to make sure that they get what they want from us. But one writer has described it well when he said about people pleasing as a form of the fear of man. You have a thousand masters instead of one to please. You think the fear of God is bad? It's nothing compared to the alternatives. Fear of man is a cruel tyranny. It's exhausting. It's complicated. And you're not nimble enough to pull it off. Isn't that great? (laughs) If you need other examples, you only need to go to the Bible. King Saul feared for his army deserting the throne. So he went and and went against the prophet's... uh, 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 the prophet's directions, and so he feared man, and he lost the throne. Israel, when it was supposed to be spying on the promised land that they would eventually take, they described themselves like grasshoppers compared to the occupants of Canaan. They were afraid of man. The Gospel of John describes that many of the religious leaders like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had a faith in Christ, but they hid it out of fear that they would be expelled from the synagogues. Fear of man is everywhere. We want to appease. We don't want to experience rejection. But the most detailed example is found in the life of Peter especially as he denies any knowledge of or relationship with Jesus the night that Jesus is arrested. And he chooses instead chooses instead to be a disguised follower of Jesus. 
He enters a courtyard, and this is this is how it's set up. I'm reading from John chapter 18, and starting in verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. We believe that's John himself. Because this disciple, John, um, was known to the high priest. We believe John had connections in, in, um, in all of Jerusalem and was... His family was well-known and respected. So the funny thing is that they know that John's a follower, but Peter's the one who gets the accusations. Okay? He went to... uh, uh, Where did I go? Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. He was not intimidated. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, John who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty, and and uh, brought Peter in. Now, um, the girl at the door says this, you are not one of his disciples, are you? This is what I call an unexpected fear. Why, why is it unexpected? Um, it is the first time that uh, that Peter says he doesn't know Jesus, and getting into this courtyard, there's a gatekeeper and, and, and more of a, a greeter and gatekeeper. She's only to let certain people in, but she's to be kind to them and nice to them and, and respectful because she is a young girl, not much respect there, and she is probably a bond slave or a slave, even less respect there. But she opens the door and she says something very inappropriate. You're not one of Jesus' disciples, are you? Now, that sets it up. So the issue is, and you know what Peter says, but the issue is, what will Peter say? You ever been caught off guard and you put up your guard when you are? It's essentially what's happening. She's a nobody. He has nothing to be worried about. No intimidation from her. It's just in her words. And Peter says in two Greek words, ouk eimi, the best way to describe that or best way to translate that is, I'm not. I'm not going to go into details, but I'm not. He doesn't say, I'm not a disciple. He just says, I'm not. And then he goes in. He's lying unexpectedly to another. It, you know, maybe you found yourself just caught off guard, and, and there's no reason to fear what's happened, but, but then you lie unexpectedly because you don't know what else to say, but you're afraid of man, and it pops up. It's just your first response. It's your natural inclination. It's a thoughtless comment. Going back, you know, more than 50 years, um, I start school as my senior year in, 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 at John Muir High School in Pasadena, and one person I know, uh, not a really close friend, but and, and not a big intimidating guy, but he just comes up to me and says, Jim, I hear you got religion this summer. Is that true? I'm not going to tell you what I said. <laughs> but that's the question. How would you answer it? My answer would reveal whether I had the fear of God or the fear of men controlling me. That's the first time. 
The second time happens in a similar way. It, it, it seems to be described this way. Peter escapes this girl and decides to have sort of uh, an, an anonymous uh, uh, profile there in the, in, the, in the courtyard. So he sits with a group of people, probably none of them know him. And, and these people would be servants, and, and they start a fire to keep warm on a, on a cold night. And, and they're just keeping warm. You know what that's like, the chit-chat. And, and you're not getting to anything really personal. You're, you're just one of the guys who needs to stay warm. Well, it says this, as Simon stood warming himself, he was asked, but it literally says in the Greek, they asked him. In other words, the crowd gives him a question. You know what the question is? You're not one of his disciples, are you? In, in fact, in, in, as you look at the, the language it was written in, it is exactly the same question as the girl asked, with just a, 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 there's one or two differences at the very end of the sentence. But it comes to us as the exact same question. You see, he's given a second chance to redeem himself. To fulfill his promise that he's willing to die for Jesus. To show his deep devotion for his rabbi. But the fear of man before a whole group causes him to change his mind. Tell me, you ever stand before co-workers or neighbors or classmates or club leaders? And, and, and language comes out or topics come out you really don't want to talk on. But there you are, you're in the midst of them. Um, maybe there's a, 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 an off-color joke and everybody laughs because, oh, that's really good. Um, maybe it's a whole uh, uh, series of curses that comes out because everything is so stressful there. Uh, maybe it's somebody bragging about immoral behavior. And you want their approval. You want to be one of the gang. So you decide if you do not laugh with them, if you do not curse back, you know, and, and add those curses, or, or, or you want to top their stories of immoral behavior, if you don't do that, you won't be one of them. You'll be labeled out of the group, voted off the island. What do you do? Now, I want to say this. If you want to get over that fear, join the ministry. Can I explain why? I mean, it really does help. Since I've become a minister... See if this is true, Gary. Okay. Since I've become a minister, uh, when I'm talking to new people and they don't know I'm a minister, you know, I just talk as I usually do. And then, like happens often, they say, well, who are you and what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm the pastor of Bergen Park Church. And immediately they start to think, did I say anything (laughs) that would get his disapproval, that would cause his rejection? It's a lot easier now than before for me. In fact, it'd be like you, uh, let's say you had this private bet for more than you knew you should have bet, but you won. And you tell somebody about it, and you find out the person you told about it works for the IRS. (laughs) And he jots down your name and goes, I'll be in touch. You see, uh, it is easier now, but it still pops its head. When uh, when I applied to join an honest, uh, an honorary business fraternity in in my senior year at CU, I was asked to pay a certain amount of dues for the years to come. And I'll be honest, it seemed a bit steep because I was bussing tables and you know trying to 
earn money as I could as well as be a good student. And so I, I was doing that. And I said, boy, that seems like a lot of money. Can I ask, how do you spend it? Those of you who are in unions, you ask, you know, some of you are asking those questions. How are you going to spend it? Those of you who are in certain associations want to know, how are my dues spent? Those of you who are in homeowners associations, you, you know, you want to ask, is the money being used well? Well, <clears throat> here was the answer. We have several parties a year, and most of the money goes to booze and strippers. Do you have a problem with that? <laughs> you see the confrontation? Do you have a problem with that? And the fear of man pops up its ugly head. Peter answers with the same two words, and then he leaves that group too. I am not. Uk a me. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not associated with Jesus. Then there's the familiar fear, the one that he probably should have noticed, but it, it caught him sort of off guard too. But it says in, in verses 26 and 27 that one of the high priest servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, and I'd like to say whose ear Jesus healed, okay, challenged him. Didn't I see you in the olive grove? And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, the rooster begins to crow. This man was an eyewitness, not a speculator, but a spectator. Didn't I see you there? Now, this was probably the most challenging. This was probably the most dangerous. And it was because he's got this pattern going. Why not use what I've said in the past? And he does. But Luke puts it very clearly that it's at this very moment when he says, no, not me. This is, it says, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. The Lord was probably being transported out of the courtyard in someone else. But the timing of God was perfect. And their eyes meet. And then it says, then Peter remembered the word that the Lord had spoken to him. Why is the timing perfect? Peter displays his fear of rejection. And now he has to face the one that he has denied. I've had a couple of moments in that, uh, like that in my life. I hate them. I hate them. I am so ashamed of myself. I hate those moments. So let's talk about, what do we do about it? Is this a fear that we can grow out of? Is this a fear that God wants to speak to in our lives? Is this a fear that, that we know we can be not just combating, but winning over? I'd like you, if you could, to just pretend for a moment that you are Peter. Pretend to be Peter. And at this moment, after denying any association for Jesus once, twice, three times a denial, then find Jesus looking right at you. And you're aware of what Jesus just heard. Ook a me. I'm not. Pretty hard moment, isn't it? And if we long to be free from the fear of man and any disapproval that man may give us, we have to first and foremost desire God's approval of us, which he has given in sending Christ Jesus to this earth. 
That's where it comes first. See, the Bible just puts it very clearly. Fear of man, fear of God. Choose. Fear of man, fear of God. Go ahead, choose. Which one will be controlling you? How do we replace the fear of rejection in our lives? And it's down to this. Determine whose approval you desire most. Whose approval do you desire most in life? I've had a long history of saying, I, you know, I, I don't want you to dislike me. I don't want you to disapprove of me. Whose approval do you desire most? Which means the less. How, how do you uh, decrease your desire for the approval of man and increase your desire for the approval of God? It gets down to that. I pray that you are aware of God's thoughts and longings for you. And I pray that you understand that his thoughts and longings for you, his approval of you, is the same approval that he has for his son Jesus if you have placed your trust in him. It is true. I know I'm making this very simplified. But the one who trusts in in Jesus, God looks at as Jesus. Righteous and approved, sins forgiven, eternity granted. So when you place your trust in Jesus, you find forgiveness, and but you also put God in his right, rightful position of your life. You give him the weight that he so much deserves. Whose approval means most to you? If God, then you live to please the one Supreme Heavenly Father who loves you intensely and will continue to love you no matter what your choices are. But if it's man, you will be trying to please a thousand masters whose love you must earn over and over again and then it'll never be enough. If you have determined whose whose approval means most to you, let me take you to the restoration of Peter where he is restored to Jesus and restored to the ministry that Jesus wants him to have. Because, you know, how do you replace the rejection fear? Well, you've got to put God at his right place, and here's how it happens. Uh, now, what I'm about to share is transformational, not just therapeutical. I'm going to state it in a, in a um, you might say, a principle, but understand it's a long journey that you continue to apply throughout your life. The fear of man continues to come up. And we have to respond to it over this, in times of this long journey. So God's way to overcome the fear of rejection is to learn love. And then to love with greater intensity and frequency. So after three times denying the loyalty of Jesus, uh, Jesus meets Peter, Jesus meets Peter after he's risen. and, and, and those two and, and the other disciples have a wonderful breakfast, you might say a memorial breakfast, on, on a beach of Lake Galilee. And then he pulls Peter aside and he simply asks Peter a question. Peter, do you love me? Well, you understand that Jesus is the one who says, I, I don't know him. I, I know nothing about him. But so he asks Peter, do you love me? And we find that Peter sort of beats around the bush, but Jesus does not. 
Peter, do you love me? And that question is directed at Peter's three denials and the final look between Jesus and Peter after the third one. And Jesus is essentially recalling those denials, understanding that they should earn Jesus' rejection of them because Peter copped out. Peter chose fear of man. But then Jesus replaces those with three opportunities. And so now that uh, Peter has fully experienced the fear of man, then understand the idea is to replace that with the fear of God by loving him. And that's what we are wired to do. We were made to exhibit love for God. So how does love for God grow in you? That's the Can you pinpoint that? Can you pinpoint what were the experiences, what were the seasons in which you sensed your love for God continued to increase, and maybe it was at a a point that you've never experienced before? I tend to be more mental than emotional, and that really helps me. So for me, continuing to read about the love of God, more than that, reading the Gospels every year, I am just amazed at Jesus' love and approval for people like me. And I respond, he loves me, I love him. That works for me. I try to be also in constant awareness of how how much this great God loves me. He loves me first and he loves me completely. And from his love, I learn to love him more. Grow in love for Jesus. And it's one of the ways God replaces the fear of man. Each of those do you love me's came with a direction. It came with care for my sheep, feed my lambs. Each of those questions was followed by, you might say, um, now here's what you do. Or here's how you show it. So his second instruction was simply love other Christians. We replace the fear of man by loving God and loving his people. We replace the fear of God by loving God and loving his people. The greater our love for those beyond ourselves, the less we desire the approval of men. It's like this. Um, Some of you will be watching a football game today. Uh, I want you to understand when the defense is out there for the Broncos, fear is a defense. My job is to stop them. Love is God's offense. The more I find myself actively pursuing the love of other believers, the less I will be seeking their approval. Before I go any further, does that make sense? Does it make sense? Okay. Hey, you back there, wake up, okay? No, just kidding, he's... If it makes sense, then listen to this. The same John, who was the one who said, let Peter in. The same John would write a letter to some persecuted Christians who were facing this fear of man and fear of judgment of God if they feared man. He's writing in that context because life is hard for these Christians. So he writes this gospel... And 
you know, what they were fearing is they had lose God's approval in man's. And then he says to them, and I'm going to read it and then I'm going to paraphrase it. Perfect love cast out all fear. I'm going to put it another way. The more you love, the less you will fear man. I'm going to put it another way. Greater love expels great fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. I don't have perfect love. But I do know this. The more that I put my focus on God and his people, the less I really care about what they think of me, whether I'm a part of them, whether they like what I do or whether they think I'm clumsy. It doesn't bother me. I'm focused on God and his people. Does it work? Well, yeah, it works with Peter. Let's look, because, now again, uh, we're looking at less than two months later. Um, the Holy Spirit has come, and believe me, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, it's not that it casts out all fear or you'll be bold for the rest of your life, but the Holy Spirit does come, and that is God living inside. But the response of this, when, when you know, two months later, when the disciples are speaking in tongues, Peter stands up and he speaks fearlessly. He looks at the same people whom he feared earlier and he declares to them these words. As he makes his stand with the eleven there in a crowd of many thousand, which would put fear in many people, he says this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Tell me, is he afraid of him there? God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The fear of man seems to have evaporated. It'll show itself again. But it's evaporated. Not too long later, uh, Peter is arrested and he spends a lot of time being arrested in the rest of his life. And he appears before the religious council, the same religious council that Peter, like, uh, that uh, people like uh, Nicodemus and Joseph were afraid of and didn't want to be cast out of. Uh, Peter looks at them and he says with the other apostles while they are um, under arrest, when they are ordered, do not speak any more about Jesus, their answer is, we must obey God rather than men. One master, not thousands. Sorry. It's a simple practice that we take away with us today. This simple practice is our takeaway. Replace your fear of men with the love of God for his people. I know you want a lot of how-to's. Not today. Start with that. If you believe that's true, and I do, and I realize even this morning, those thoughts that have come over me, I replace it with the fear of God and a love for men. Therefore, the love of God takes over and the fear of man evaporates. Let's pray. Lord, we agree that the fear of man is a terrible master. It pops itself up so that we're trapped. We're snared. We're enslaved for life. It's not that we don't care about their opinions. 
but we want to care more about you. And as we care more about you, we go on the offensive. Now in silence. Had any fear of man thoughts lately? Tell them to your heavenly father. You're not informing him. He already knows. But just tell him. Lord, there's this and there's this and there's this and there's this. Tell him to your heavenly father. And he's told you what to do. Grow in love for me. Grow in love for God's people. And the fear of man will be replaced with God's love in you. Take that to our hearts. Lord, I'm going home tonight and reading this over again. Not just to make sure I've got it right. I think I did that this this week. But simply to write down where I express the fear of man. Not to throw those people out of my life, but instead of fearing them, loving them. And I ask this in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen.